kind of the intro there, we're talking about the Ten Commandments for the next couple weeks. Uh, before we jump into that, I want to mention just a couple things. First of all, let me share this. First of all, this morning, so this is the first, this is a, there's a first for me this morning. Never had this happen because I am a pastor on the East Coast. I'm a big football fan and a pastor on the East Coast, so we never, kickoff for us, if I was in California, we could be preaching and there's a game going on. Uh, but this is the first this has ever happened. My precious Miami Dolphins are on the field right now in London. We were backstage watching it. Now, go ahead and watch this video. This will kind of explain some of what... Um... A football team driving down Soldier Field with... Oh, one minute, 13 seconds left on the clock. And no timeouts left. No timeouts left because the coach has stupidly used them all up. Football fans can find anything they need at Chicago's Electro-Electronics, provided they have Visa. Because if you try to use American Express... And we score! You don't have a prayer. That is, I got online last night to find that. I remember seeing that years ago. That commercial's from 2000, so that's, that's an old commercial. But again, the score right now, 13 to 7. They are losing. I will say that. I just checked. Um, so they did offer to put it on the back screen for me as I'm talking, but I thought that might be a bit of a distraction for us all. So, I, uh, so anyway, all that to say, just have some fun. They are on. Um, with that said... We're going to jump into this series, and we're on page, if you have a journal, we're on page 35. This is the journal. If you have one, great. If not, you'd like one. It's a reading plan that kind of runs with our messages. It's out and to the right. Feel free to grab one and take it home. But here's where we're going. We're really kicking around the Ten Commandments. So why don't we turn there? I want to read them right out of the gates. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. Again, I'll read it, and then we're going to just kind of create a little tension for you as to why, uh, what we're really going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks, actually, as we kick this uh, series around and kind of just work through these these 10 uh, laws that God commanded. Exodus chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of the uh, Bibles there in the seats in front of you. It's page 63 on those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, here's our offer to you. Take that one home with you. It's our gift from us to you, uh, and we will simply replenish, uh, put a new one there in that spot. So go ahead and take that home if you'd like. Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1, and here, here's uh, what, uh, how it's written. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other gods but one. So there's first commandment. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. 
You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. And finally, the last one, the 10th one, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I don't know about you, but I've really been coveting my neighbor's donkey as of late. (laughs) So when we get to that, we'll try our best to help us understand uh, kind of how that works in today's uh, culture. But there the 10 are. Now, here's the question. Here's the tension I want to create. As a church... If you spend any kind of time here at Bethany, you've heard us say something like this. We're a church that is passionate, 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 passionate about the message of Jesus. We're passionate about grace and mercy. We're passionate about this message of Jesus saying, listen, you're a sinner, but you are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Came to live a perfect life, died a horrible death and rose to life. By us putting our faith in him, we are set free from the law of sin and death. And we'll say things like this. We're a church that's not going to preach stop it. We're going to preach follow Jesus. We're a church that says, listen, Jesus didn't so much come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So we'll say stuff like that all the time. And so you may begin to ask, well, how does that work with this? What do we do with these, these 10 laws? I mean, or do they just belong kind of in the Old Testament, some will begin to say, and the, meaning the Old Testament, the part that comes before Jesus, and now that we have Jesus, we can just kind of forget that? What, how does all this line up? Or, or maybe you say, well, Adam, um, yeah, do I, can I just live as I want? If you're really all about Jesus and not preaching stop it, but preach follow Jesus, does that mean I can just live as I want, knowing that God will forgive me for my indiscretions anyway? Or maybe um, you say, well, aren't we to obey? So you talk about grace, but where does obedience fit in? Or maybe it gets really personal when you've got that Christian friend or family member who will tell you to your face, I am a believer in Jesus. I am a Christian, but you watch them live with their boyfriend or girlfriend or live with someone who's not their husband and wife or be in adultery or doing things that you know that the scriptures are very clear on and say, no, someone who loves God's not going to live that way. But yet they'll tell you, yes, I'm a Christian and God's okay with this. So what do I do with that? How does grace fit into that? How does law fit into that? How how do I work all this? Or honestly, the place where I think it gets most personal, this tension comes when we quote a verse like Romans 8.1. It says, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. A powerful truth that I cling to. Zero, zilch. I am free in Jesus. But yet I go and sin. I break God's law. I I begin to then feel that condemnation push in and I preach to my heart. There's no condemnation, but I feel this guilt and I walk around and I I live with, what do I do with this? How do I live with no condemnation and live free? But yet when I sin, I feel, what do I do with all this tension in my heart and my life? So that's where we're going to push in over the next couple weeks. And I want to encourage you to do the hard work. Be honest. (laughs) There is going to be tension around this, and that's okay. Push in. Ask the questions. Here's to to really get the tension going and really kind of kick out the gates. Here's the question I'd love to start with for you. Right now, August or October 4th at roughly 11 o'clock in the morning, 2015, how does God feel about me right now? How would you answer that? Right now, in this very moment, how does God feel about you? Truly feel about you. And then the second question is, how do you determine that answer? How did you come to that answer? 
And I think what we do with this question is going to tell you where you're personally at and how you handle law and how you handle grace. How does God feel about you? You know, as I think about this, here's how I answer this question. You know how he feels about me? And I think this is true of every one of you in this room that would say, I'm a Christian. I put my faith in Jesus. Do you know how he feels about you? He has affection for you. He loves you. He desires your welfare. Is that how you answered it? If you didn't answer it that way, you've got to wrestle with, well, what's the gospel? What do I do with it? How does he feel? In Jesus, the scriptures teach that Jesus, because of my faith in Jesus, yes, I'm a sinner, my faith in Jesus, he is now in me and I am in him. And God looks at me and says, I credit to you righteousness, goodness. I look at you and see Jesus, God says. So what do we do with this? Now, some of you will say, but Adam, 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 (laughs) doesn't my action determine at some level my relationship with God? How I live and what I do. Doesn't that in some way, I mean, after all, if my spouse were to go out and cheat on me and do something to me, at some level, that's going to impact my relationship with them. So you say, well, so doesn't at some level, how I live and how I behave and how I obey, doesn't at some level that impact how God feels about me? Well, I would say, if you're not asking that question, you've probably not honestly engaged the tension that you need to engage around this subject. And I want to honestly encourage you to push into this tension. Get down into where the rubber meets the road of how does this message of grace and law really come together in my life? How does it work? And here's what we're going to look at this morning. This is what's going to kick off this whole series. If you forget everything else in this series, I think this is absolutely foundational. When you're going to study the Ten Commandments, God initiated a relationship before he stated the law. I cannot say this strongly enough. God steps towards his people and creates and forms and establishes a relationship with his people before he states the law. You say, where do you get that, Adam? Is that in this, is that in this text? Well, let's look at it. If you're, if you're open there, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at just the first two verses this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. So it started out verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. Verse 2. Very first phrase, I am the Lord, what? Your God. What does it not say? This is so important. It's God looks at his people, God's speaking to Moses, who's going to take these tablets that are being chiseled on, and he's going to take them down to to all of God's people. And it starts out, so listen, I want you to know, I am the Lord, your God. It does not say, I am the Lord, the God. It's not some abstract pie-in-the-sky grandfather sitting off on his porch, sipping lemonade, rocking in a rocking chair, letting the world just kind of figure it out. He says, I am the Lord, your God. It is a personal statement. He's looking towards his people and saying, listen, I, I'm personal, I'm close, I'm not distant. And, he's, and the thing that's important to remember is his people did nothing to establish this relationship. He's simply saying, you're my people, you're in. And the law comes after this personal statement, I am the Lord, your God. It also comes after, look at the rest of the verse. So I am a personal God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So I love this. 
to set the context here, here's kind of what's happening. If you go back to, I'm not going to turn it out. Maybe you want to write it down and look at it this week. Genesis chapter 15. There's this guy named Abraham and Abraham has said, listen, I want you. He was originally named Abram and this God, this personal God shows up to him and says earlier in Genesis, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave your family, leave your place of of where you've grown up and where you have roots. And I want you to follow me and I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you the promise. And, And the promise is this, there is, you are going to be a great nation and coming out of this nation, your descendant, he says in Genesis chapter 15. It's going to bless all people and your, this nation will be great. And this nation will touch many nations. Now in Genesis chapter 15, this powerful statement happens and God steps towards this guy. Now he changes his name to Abraham and he steps towards Abraham and he forms a covenant just like we do in a marriage. It's a covenant. It's a binding. It cannot be broken. It's coming together. And he looks at him. He says, listen, Abraham, your nation will be great. You will look, look up to the star, the sky, and you count all the stars. You will have more offspring than what you can count stars in the sand on the she- seashore. And he says to him, but here's the thing, Abraham. These people that will be your people, the land that I'm going to give them, that I've promised to you, it's going to be roughly 400 years away yet. 400 years. Could you imagine Abraham sitting in here and hearing that? Well, come on, God, let's do it now. Now, there's a little clue in Genesis 15 as to why it doesn't happen right away, because God is for all people. And the people that were living in the land that God was about to give him, it gives us this little clue in Genesis 15. It says their sin had not yet reached its full measure. So they're sinful people as we all are, but their wickedness had not become just extreme and horrible. So God says, I'm going to give them grace. I'm going to give them time. And it's going to take about 400 years for their wickedness to reach the point where I've said enough. And in that 400 years, your people will be in slavery in the land in Africa, in Egypt. 400 years. Now, I want you to picture this. 400 years. So God steps out and says, I am the Lord, your God. I think what he's saying is, hey, guys, I don't know about you, but after 400 years, they've probably forgotten that he's a personal God. After 400 years of watching your family die at the hands of a taskmaster, whipping them, slapping them, punishing them, pushing them to produce bricks and mortar. After 400 years of crying out to God and saying, where are you? Take us out of this hellish existence. Give us life. You've promised us something great, and here we are. And, and for 400 years, it's been nothing but the skies have been closed. It's like you're praying to God. Have you ever been there? You're praying to God. It's like, God, are you listening? Are you there? And I think after 400 years, God is stepping towards his people and giving them this gentle reminder. I am your God. And Abraham, who in Genesis 15, it clearly states he was righteous because he believed didn't obey, he believed. And God says, you're righteous. That's before the law was ever given. So I don't know about you. I don't know about you. Maybe some of you have come here this morning because you're in a position like I find myself in at times. Maybe some of you have come here this morning to just hear this very message. God is a personal God. You may be on your knees crying. You may be driving to work, beating that steering wheel. You may be up late at night and in the middle of the night. 
You may be sitting over the bed of your children. You may be, you may be struggling in a marriage. You may be, and you're sitting there crying out and saying, God, are you hearing me? I think God's message is, I am your God. I'm a personal God and I want a relationship with you. I am the Lord, your God. And then he reminds them, I've brought you out of Egypt. This is what I did for you. And this is the other beautiful thing. They're taken out of slavery before they're given the law too. It's like, I have this relationship with you. Now, you may say, well, Adam, are you grasping for straws? <laughs> it's one little phrase in the 10 commandments. Are you, are you grasping at things here? Is this really what the message is? Well, great question. If you didn't ask it, hope you do. Here it is. Galatians chapter three. This is now the apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking back at this time. And here's what he says. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. Some of your translations will say seed or descendant or offspring. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, plural, as if he meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ, the coming Messiah. So this is the promise. I've given you this promise, Abram. And through your line, through your nation, is going to come a, a, a man who's fully God, who's going to save his people, save all people. He's going to bless all nations, as it says in Genesis. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. See what he's saying? So listen, I stepped towards you in relationship. I stepped towards you with a covenant. I stepped towards you in, in, in this promise. So 430 years later, when the law is given, it can't then cancel out the relationship. It's not like I'm saying, okay, I started this relationship with you now. You got to go obey the laws or the relationship's done. So it says, the agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law then it would not be the result of accepting God's promises or, or faith is what Abraham had. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. So again, I cannot state enough. Um, God establishes and initiates a relationship before he gives the law. God's law is never given to establish a relationship. God did not give us the 10 commandments to say, here, I want a relationship with you. Go obey the rules and we're going to have a relationship. That's not why he gave them. God's law is given to confirm an existing relationship. It's almost like this. Here's, what, here's how I kind of look at it. It's like God saying, okay, guys, I am for you. I love you. You've stepped towards me. Here it is. I want, to, I want you to know how to now live. I am the author and sustainer and creator of life. So I'm going to give you some laws on how life works. And if you follow these laws, life is going to be a lot better for you. You've heard me use this analogy before. Some of you have. It's the 10 commandments, the 10 laws. This is how it's, they're laws, not rules. Rules are made to be broken. Laws just, they're laws. Like gravity. I've talked about this before. It's the law of gravity, right? Not the rule of gravity. Now I can deny its existence all day long. I can say Newton didn't know what he was talking about when he saw the apple fall. He was on, it just, no, he doesn't know. And so I can deny gravity exists and I can run and jump off my back porch thinking I'm Superman and I'm going to fly. But guess what's going to happen? The law of gravity will take over whether I believe in it or not. And I will crash to the ground and my wife will be taking me to the emergency room to repair a broken body. Why? Because I violated a law. 
So I think God's saying, I have this relationship with you. I'm going to step towards you and show you how life works. It's a gift. Steve Brown, a a pastor and theologian down in um, a, a seminary professor, actually, in Florida, says it this way. The law reflects the parameters of God's desire, not the parameters of his love. A huge point. Another way to say it is this. Obedience does not determine ownership. Obedience does not determine ownership. Take, take a dog. Show of hands. How many of you have dogs in the room? Okay, most, a lot of you. Now, we don't have a dog. I grew up with dogs. My very first dog was a dog named Dinksy. Now, that's, you say, wow, Dinksy. Dinksy was Chinese for Spike. And the reason we got Dinksy was because Dinksy was, it was, a, was a dentist in Lidditz, bought Dinksy as a puppy and was sold this puppy for hundreds, thousands of dollars because it was supposedly a purebred Sharpay. Well, as Dinksy started to grow, they discovered it's not a purebred Sharpay. It's actually a Sharpay and a Dachshund mix. Now, if you can picture this. So it's got the head of a Sharpay and the body of a Dachshund. And it had the personality of a Sharpay. And it would literally, until we got it, it would crawl down groundhog holes and she would drag groundhog. I mean, this was a vicious little dog. Well, Dinksy, what Dinksy did in the dentist office, Dinksy chewed every last thing in, that, in, in, the, in the home. So they paid for, not the, the money that you have to want to even want to do this. They paid for the dog to go to a dog psychologist. <laughs> really? I didn't know such a thing existed. So the dog goes to a dog psychologist and the dog continues to chew. So finally, the the dog psychologist says to the dentist, the dog needs a new home. So Dinksy becomes ours. We now have Dinksy. So the dentist said, I love Dinksy, but Dinksy's destroying my property. So I want Dinksy. So Dinksy ends up in a good home. Dinksy is actually Chinese for Spike, by the way, if you're wondering. So I... I tried hard to change that to just call her Spike, but anyway, it was what it was. So Dinksy now is our dog. Now, we also then raised Great Danes. So we have little Dinksy, and then we have Great Danes. If you can picture, it's a very funny scene. Now, here's the deal. I don't have a dog today because some of my scarred memories from some of those experiences... I also don't have a dog today because dogs tie you down and they don't allow you to be mobile. You got to find, and now dogs are just expensive. And I just say, you know what? I don't need, I don't need the expense of a dog and the headache of it. But if I'd go out and buy another little dinksy or another dog and bring it home, okay, it's my dog. Now, if I bring my dog home and my dog goes into the neighbor's yard and does business that he shouldn't or she shouldn't be doing, that's disobeying, but it's still my dog. I own the dog. Now, if Dinksy continues to do this, it's still my dog. So I may go out and invest in a thing called an electric fence, invisible fence, right? Now, I ask the question, when did I buy the fence? Before or after I had the dog? After I had the dog. I think that's the law. Obedience does not determine ownership. It is my dog. That dog can disobey and chew and do all kinds of, but it's still my dog. Now, I go out and buy the fence to put the parameters up. I do it because I own the dog and it's my dog. Another way to say this would be this. Law does not establish relationship. Okay, here's how I'd illustrate this one. When I got married uh, a little over 16 years ago, walked down the aisle to a beautiful girl named Tanya Brahm. 
And I stood at the front, and I'm up front here. You all see the video. I'm rocking like crazy. I mean, I'm back and forth, and the nerves are beating. My sisters come walking down the aisle, and I start crying. And, I mean, I'm an emotional wreck. Well, then she comes out, and all the tears tear up. And I'm like, yes, here we go. Well, we get married, and here's one thing I've learned about marriage. You do not know who you're marrying. Okay? I, just for what it's worth, I'm just going to throw it out there. It'll save those of you who want to get married. I mean, just take, tuck this one away. You'd never know who you're, and matter of fact, there are some, there are some counselors and psychologists. There's one very prominent one at Duke university who says this, they believe that if you've been married for 50 years, you would have been married in 50 years to five people. That doesn't mean you got divorced and remarried. That means you married the same person for 50 years, but over 50 years, we change and we morph and we, we grow and we, you know, trauma can happen and that can really alter. So over, so it's like, you don't know who you're going to marry. And then once you get married, you're like, wow, she or he's changing. Now, Tanya walked into this. I think she thought she married, I mean, this guy. I mean, she saw me. She tells the story when she met me. Um, I was this bleach blonde. I, I used sun in, sprayed it all over my head. <laughs> I was at a camp and I was, I was, I won't tell you what I was bench pressing, but it was a lot of weight. And I did a, we did a bench-a-thon and she came to watch me. And so I'm laying on a bench like this and I'm pushing up you know, grunting and, and I stand up and I had a, a thinner waist and a much broader shoulder. I mean, this probably wouldn't be big enough to measure Chris then. Um, so she looks at me, she's like, wow. And I was, I was really good with working with boys. And, and she's like, this guy's awesome. When we get married and she discovers this dude is anal. <laughs> I mean, he's about as task driven as they get. I mean, I had my routines, I had my disciplines, I had the things that I do and don't do. And I mean, it was like, we are locked and loaded and it is all structured and ordered. And here we go. And life is going to be great if she would just stick to this plan. (laughs) That's how it works. Now, part of my self-disciplined, task-driven nature, I did things like I tried to do. It wasn't perfect. But I tried to help her around the house. I tried to serve her. So I did dishes. I tried to really mow the lawn and take care of all that. I tried to help clean. I tried to jump in and do laundry where I could. So, I mean, I was like this task-driven guy. And I'm like, I'm going to let her know I love her because I'm going to knock the dishes out of town. I mean, this is awesome. I can do this. Well, after some time, you begin to have what I call intense fellowship. Any of you ever had intense fellowship, <laughs> AKA fight? So we have this, these moments. And what I found myself doing in these moments was I would like, and I'd say, okay, well, I love her. I'm forced so I'm going to work harder. So what I did, I did the, I didn't miss the dishes at that point. Like, okay, so we fight the next day. I'm doing the dishes, man. We're getting the dishes done. And I would just serve my tail off for her. And she wasn't happy. I'm like, what more do you want? I'm like the model husband here. So I'm sitting down with, with, a, with actually it was my boss, the, the lead pastor of the church I was at, a great man who, very gracious and loving. And he says to me, Adam, this, this, to this day, it, it sticks in my heart. He says, Adam, talking how it's going and I'm sharing. And I'm like, man, Doug, she doesn't get it. I mean, I'm like this awesome husband. I'm doing all these, doing all these dishes and I'm laying it all out. And I'm serving her. And he looks at me and he goes, is that what she wants? So what do you mean? What wife doesn't want the dishes done? What wife doesn't want help with the laundry? I'm like, what do you mean is that? Well, of course that's what she wants. I'm showing her that I love her. He says, no, you're not. She doesn't want that. And then he said this. I, this is where this comes from. He says, Adam, law. He actually looked at me and said, what's the message of Jesus tell you? So I thought a while and I said, he says, Adam, what is the gospel? 
So I said, well, it's that I was alienated from a, a perfect God and I was a sinner. That sin alienated me and I couldn't fix the problem no matter how hard I worked. So no matter how hard I worked, I couldn't quite fix it. So God actually sent a solution in Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a terrible death, rose to new life. And by me placing my faith in him, that gap is closed down and I'm now in relationship. He said, Adam, how does that apply to your marriage? And then he said this, law does not establish relationship. Oh, she may like having the dishes done, but that's not really what she wants. She wants you. She wants your heart. She wants a relationship. She wants to be vulnerable and connect. That's what she wants. And that's what you're not giving her. And so I've thought about this, and this is why this study is so important to me, because so many of us live with a law-driven mindset. I'm going to work harder. God, I'll show you how good I am. I can do it. And God's saying, no, you can't do it. I have a relationship with you. I've already initiated that. That's done. That's over. If you believe in Jesus, you're in. You're part of the family. You're my son and you're my daughter. So we're, we're, we got this. I want you. I want your heart. Now, keep doing the dishes. That's nice. But give her your heart. Connect with her. So again, I'm forever grateful to that pastor for what he shared with me. And that's where this, I think the rubber meets the road of what do we do with the Ten Commandments? What do we do with the law? And how does the gospel really come to bear on how we live our lives? Now, I will say, I just want to throw out to you, in your bulletin, in the note sheet, Chris mentioned, hopefully you came in, you should have gotten a bulletin. In the note sheet, there at the bottom, um, you'll see a little chart. You'll say, well, Adam, still, come on. Doesn't in some way how you act, doesn't how you behave in some way impact your relationship with God? Well, I want to mention this briefly. This comes from a guy by the name of Brian Chaffel. He's a seminary professor out in, I believe it's St. Louis, so don't hold me to that. Wrote a book called Holiness by Grace. It's not a, a cookies at the bottom shelf kind of book, but it's probably one of the best books ever dealing with, in my opinion, on this tension between law and grace. And he, in the book, he lays this out. I've actually shared this with you guys before, but I just want to throw this out. And we're going to talk about this chart a little more throughout the series. But it says this here. There are some things that cannot change. The scriptures are crystal clear. If you put your faith in Jesus, here are things that cannot change. First thing that cannot change. You're adopted. You're in, you're a son, you're a daughter. End of story. It cannot change. Second thing, his desire for our welfare or our good cannot change. No matter what you do, no matter what laws you obey or don't obey, it cannot change. His actual affection for you cannot change. His love for us cannot change. Our destiny, our future in a place called heaven, cannot change. And then our security cannot change. Now, you say, but, but what if I disobey the law? And what if I don't do what I'm supposed to do? Well, here are the things that can change. Our fellowship. And I think most of us get this, right? Like the illustration I used earlier, if you're married and your spouse cheats on you, guess what? When you find that out, you're not getting in bed together that night, right? Matter of fact, there, someone's probably moving out for a little while. Because the relationship, there is, there is oh, you may still be married, <laughs> And you still may even love each other. I don't doubt that. I've, t- I've walked with couples in this situation. I really believe they loved each they, they still do. But guess what? The fellowship is broken. So we're going to talk about this throughout the series. How we handle the law can impact how the, the, that thing called fellowship and communion and, and that closeness. Uh, the second thing that can change is our experience of his blessing. 
That one can, that, how we handle this can alter that. That doesn't mean I go obey, so I get. That's not what I'm saying. And we'll unpack that throughout the series. The other thing that can change is our assurance of his love. Oh, he will not change in his love, but I may not feel it. I'm not going to always feel love because I, and I'm going to share a verse in just a minute that really illustrates that one. Next thing that can change is his delight in our actions. He's not going to look and say, man, Adam, I'm really glad you just did that. Again, the one commandment says, listen, I'm a jealous God. You continue to give yourself to other gods. He's not real happy. So we're going to talk about that. That can change his discipline. Now, here's one of the key things that I think distinguishes. If you're in this room, this morning, you say, I'm a believer. And you're maybe there's another person who says, I'm not a believer in Jesus. Here's, I think, one of the key disciplines. I believe the scriptures teach when you're not a believer, God's going to let you go. That's why you want to live. Go live. A believer, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, Romans chapter 1 is where I take that. God just kind of lets you go. He turns them over to go live where you want to live. Now, a believer, Hebrews chapter 12 says, because you're a child of God, he will discipline you. And he actually goes on to say, listen, if you're not disciplined, you're not really a child. It's his love that's going to prune and cut and do the things necessary to bring about fruit in your life. So again, that will change. And then the final one is our sense of guilt. We may not feel secure. They're kind of counteract one another. We may not feel secure because we have guilt. But we are secure, but we have this sense of guilt. So again, we'll unpack that more and more throughout the series. That's going to kind of be, just kind of give you a little teaser. They're kind of the things we're going to kick around this whole series. But here's the thing this morning. I just want you to know this. God starts out, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God. I'm personal. I love you. I'm for you. I'm initiating a relationship with you before I'm giving you the law. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. A well-known verse. If you've been around church at all, you've probably, even if you haven't, you might have heard this verse. This comes into context where Jesus is talking to some religious people. And if you read the, ch- the verses before it, he's kind of ticked off. And he's letting them know, you guys have some problems. You're, you go to church all the time and you stand up and preach and tell people how they should live. But man, you've got some, here it says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's speaking to his chosen people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. I want to pause right there. His affection is for them. He loves them. He's looking at him saying, listen, I love you. I want to bring you close. I want to, this, this close, intimate picture of a chicken gathering her hands and pulling them in close to her. But why couldn't it happen? What does the end of the verse say? But you wouldn't let me. Was the problem God or was the problem me? I am the Lord, your God. I love you. I'm for you. You know what's interesting? It's not the horror of what they've done. It's preventing Jesus from bringing them in to bringing them home. It's not the horror of the things that you and I do that prevents us from that. Do you know what it is? It's our unwillingness to let him love us. To step towards a God that steps down and says, I'm not a distant deity that sits off disconnected from reality. I am here. I am your God. I love you. In Jesus, I am for you. God initiated a relationship before he states the law. Then the law in the context of relationship is a gift to help us to live well and enjoy life. So I guess I'd end this way and go to prayer, and then the team's going to come out and sing, lead us in a final song. 
I want to start by just, just as I go to prayer, just ask this question. Are you in a relationship with your God? Not the God, your God. Now, that could be a couple things. Number one, that could be, maybe you're in this room this morning, someone invited you here, and it's, you're saying, well, Adam, this is my first time in church, or Adam, you know, I'm not even sure I know what it means to be a Christian, or Adam, I'm not even sure about this Jesus guy. I'm not, maybe that's you. You know, the cool thing is this morning, all it is is saying, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'll put my hand up on that one. And because of Jesus, it's simple faith, trust, belief in Jesus, that he provides the solution to that relationship. And you're in. Bang, bang, done. You're in the family. The other thing with this question, are you in a relationship with your God? Maybe you're someone that says, yeah, Adam, I've, I've prayed a prayer 30, 40, maybe even only 10 years ago, but it's been a while back. I'd ask this. How's it going in that relationship? Are you doing a lot of, are you doing the dishes? Or are you giving them your heart? Are you working your tail off to get it done, to obey all the rules? Are you saying, God, I want to walk with you. I want to hear you daily. I want to learn from you. I want you to lead me. I want to follow you. I want to be gathered in under those wings. How is it with you? Are you allowing your God to love you? So I'm going to close in prayer and it's going to give us some time to think. Just ask, I am the Lord, your God. Is that true of you this morning? Are you in relationship with him? God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I just want to take a moment of silence right now, actually, and just let people sit here. And God, I ask as we're in this moment of silence, I ask that you would just powerfully speak to people's hearts. God, I pray that they would hear this one clear statement. I am your God. I am your God. I'm not distant and I'm not far off. I'm here. I want to walk with you. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being our God, my God. God, we worship you. We worship you and we love you. Thank you for the law and thank you for directing us and how to live life so we can enjoy it to the full. But God, ultimately, just thank you for Jesus and thank you for that relationship that we can have with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.